This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Profoundly Pointless Podcast. My name is Nick. Coming up on this episode, we have an interesting mix of things that don't really seem like they should go together. But he was just laying there in his casket casket he was solemn he was peaceful and he and he looked at peace and i just thought wow that was fascinating <laughs> i thought it was funny when i wrote it and i ran it by a couple of people i tried it at an open mic and they oh i thought that they they turned on me really fast they were gonna rush the stage on you Here, here's the million dollar question is what kind of bear would it be I'm going to go top three. I would go, if I'm going to get mauled by a bear, I'm going to go grizzly bear number one, polar bear number two. See, I, I would rather, like, to make it just a true news story, like, give me, like, a koala bear. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. Our first guest is somebody that I found while I was scrolling through Twitter, and I saw this person and just thought, we have to talk to them. We have to talk to them and find out how they got into both of these professions. This is Morty the Mortician, who is a mortician, still practicing, and is also just really getting going on a stand-up comedy career. How does somebody become a mortician and a stand-up comedian? Well, the mortician part kind of came unexpectedly. It's something that I I wanted to do since I was a little kid. And uh, as I got older, I did other jobs, but I always kind of been in the funeral industry. And eventually it kind of snowballed from there. Uh, the stand-up comedy, that's eh, a little bit different. That's something that I never, ever, ever wanted to do. Kind of got into that by chance and kind of almost by accident. I, I guess when I anticipated talking to you, I kind of thought that would be the reverse, that the comedy was something you always wanted to do and the mortician thing was something you fell into. Just almost the exact opposite, Nick. As a kid, how does one dream of being a mortician? That's not necessarily something you, you usually hear. Uh, that's true. Um, when I was seven years old, there was kind of an incident that happened in um, in our neighborhood that kind of impacted me. And for most people, funerals, traumatic experience, traumatic deaths kind of have a negative impact on things and on people. For me, it was just the, the exact opposite because even though it was such a traumatic experience for people that were involved, the funeral home that took care of the deceased made it a, a good experience, a positive experience. And I was just kind of really fascinated by that. What was the tragic event that happened? Uh, my dad was a doctor, and when he was in charge of the county hospital back then, the county hospital was just a two-room emergency room behind the police department. So he was a sworn police officer, had a gun and a badge. All the people, uh, officers, detectives, everybody knew my dad in that in that realm. Um, one of my neighbors, who was a police detective, called my dad and said that he had actually just shot and killed his wife and was going to kill himself. My dad hung up the phone, went down the street, and, yeah, he carried out his actions. I didn't know any about anything about this for several days later, but when we went to the funeral home to pay our respects and visit, do the visitation and the viewing, on the way there, my parents kind of explained everything. And as we were at the funeral home and as I looked in and saw him, I was kind of thinking in the back of my head about this awful thing that he did to himself and to his wife, but he was just laying there in his cas casket. He was solemn. He was peaceful, and he, and he looked at peace, and I just thought, wow, that was fascinating. I mean, that wasn't what I was expecting, but I thought it was a pretty unique and positive experience for the family members. How did you become a mortician? I had actually worked other jobs, but one of the jobs I did was um, 
was a paramedic. We worked 24-hour shifts, so I actually had five days a week off. I worked two days a week. And one of the guys that I worked with actually worked part-time for uh, the coroner's office doing coroner body removals on his day off. And so he got me a job doing that. And so I worked for the coroner for a couple of years, and then me and another guy who I worked with actually decided to quit and go to mortuary school to get licensed and um, get our degrees and work in the funeral industry. How did the comedy thing get started then? Um, being a mortician and running my own funeral home, I, I always get asked to do public speaking. Church groups, civic groups, different um, organizations come to uh, asked me to speak to their groups about uh, funeral planning, different aspects of the funeral industry. And when I first started doing it, I would always ask the people um, how many people were actually freaked out when they found out a mortician was going to be there. And somebody would always raise their hands. And I know it's a topic people don't want to talk about. So as I started doing more of it, I started making my talks um, educational, informative, but I would inject a little bit of humor in it to kind of make them at ease and let them know that I wasn't your stereotypical mortician. I was just kind of a regular guy. After one of my talks, a lady came up to me and said, hey, you're actually kind of funny. Have you ever thought about doing stand-up? And I said, no, it's something I've never really wanted to do. Um, I just kind of do a little bit of humor just to kind of lighten the mood um, but and kind of left it at that. But one of the topics that I do, um, I wanted to write a book because normally when I speak to groups, I usually get 10, 15 minutes. But I wanted to expand on some of the different topics, so I started writing a book. And as I wrote the book, it kind of started turning into a joke writing session. I have a really good friend of mine that owns a comedy club. I told him the story, and I said, hey, do you have an open mic night that I can come and try out a couple of these jokes? And he said no, but he did have a stand-up comedy class. So I ended up taking the class. It's two weeks. You learn all the ins and outs about stand-up, and then at the end of the class, you invite all your family and friends for your graduation performance, and it kind of snowballed from there. That first time on stage... How did it go? I thought it went really well. I, I got a lot of laughs, and um, it was unique. It was a lot of fun. I had I wasn't really nervous because, for me, I'm more comfortable when I know people in the audience. I know a lot of comedians that say that they would rather perform on stage in front of a crowd that they did not know. Me, it was just the exact opposite. So I kind of killed it, so to speak. <laughs> I feel like does does mortuary industry lend itself to comedy more than other industries do? I think so. I think there's a lot of topics, a lot of, a lot of mystique. And so most of the stories that I tell on stage are based on uh, true actual stories of things that have happened in the 35 years that I've been doing this. What are some of those stories? Like, what are a couple of the best ones? How some of the things that we do behind the scenes. I used to work with this one guy that we... We're talking about the zombie apocalypse one day, and so he actually started dressing people and tying their shoelaces together and placing them in their casket. Are you are you at a point where you have to choose between one or the other, or are you still kind of moving forward? I'm really pursuing the comedy. At my age, I'm, I'm looking to retire in about four years from owning my funeral home and being a mortician. And one of the goals that I want to do is when I retire is get an RV and kind of travel around a little bit. But as I do in my travels, I'd like to do some stand-up. Um, I actually really enjoy it, and I meet a lot of people, and it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's just kind of something I want to kind of pursue a little bit more. When you do the mortuary stuff, like, walk me through that. What do you have to do? Somebody just brings in the... I think a lot of people know about it, but they don't know about how this really works. It usually starts with a phone call, somebody calling in and reporting a death, and we get all the information. Um, it's either from hospice or the hospital or from the family, where uh, wherever the person passes away from. And then we dispatch a transfer, transportation team that goes and picks up the decedent, brings them into our care, uh, we meet with the family 
and make all the necessary arrangements, whether it's going to be a cremation or a burial. We talk about all the different options and, and kind of proceed from there uh, with all the different options on the disposition that they choose and for what's best for them and their family. Are you the one that does the, the, the kind of getting the body ready? I do a lot of it. Since I kind of own my own funeral home now, I kind of delegate a lot of that. Um, but I still meet with families. That's one of the things that I really love to do the most. But a lot of the embalming, the, the cosmetic work, um, I kind of refer that out. But when you've done that in the past, is that, I would imagine the first time, is that a weird experience? I never thought it was weird. It was kind of, it, it's different and it's not for everybody, but kind of gr- growing up, being kind of around it a little bit, it, it kind of came naturally to me. I've always, with my dad being a doctor, I've always had a really strong um, sense of anatomy, biology, how the body works. And I've always thought that the human body um, was, was, was fascinating, I, and I still do. Have you ever had somebody come in in just really bad condition? Oh, yeah. How it, you, it, it happens. What do you have to do in that regard? Usually you have to kind of explain the conditions in kind of layman's terms to the to the family and give them their options, what they want to do. People die. Sometimes it's obviously a very violent thing. Can you make that look normal, or how do you do that? We, we try to make the deceit if they want to see the see their loved one we try to do our best to make make them presentable and do and do our best so they can have you know a positive experience with it sometimes you know because of the manner of death it's not feasible so we explain that option to them how long have you been doing comedy oh not not very long at all nick i'm thinking uh, we're coming up on about about two years are you starting to kind of get, would you say, established, or is that not happened yet, or did that happen a long time ago? I'm slowly but surely getting established and getting booked more. Um, at, in the beginning, I did a lot of open mics. I still do a lot of open mics because I write comedy. Uh, I try and write every single day. Um, some things that I know that's going to work, some things I know may not work, but I can always kind of tweak things a little bit. But once I have a premise and an idea of a story, um, I'll take it to an open mic and kind of work on it. I videotape all my performances, my open mics, so I can kind of gauge um, how it's working, how it's not working, and how I can t- how I can kind of tweak it a little bit. Does being the mortician, do you think that that opens people up a little bit more? Like, oh, this is going to be good? Or do you think that that turns, maybe tunes people out? Like, okay, how funny could this guy possibly be? In the beginning, it was actually, people were fascinated because there was nobody like me doing what I do and doing it on a stage in front of people. As I started doing it more and I started writing more material and getting more stage time, and telling more jokes and more stories, I kind of got an inclination that people were kind of starting to get a little uneasy about it. So now, not only do I do a lot of jokes and stories about my day job, I also do other types of material to observational material. Um, I inject, you know, stories about my family, uh, me being Jewish and you know, my relationships. And so I probably have to say right now a little bit more than maybe even a little bit less than half of my material is death related. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it could be a kind of a shtick to get you in the door, but then you have to drift away from it a little bit. Exactly. Especially as you grow and you become a better comedian, you kind of got to, um, your material has to grow with you. Have you, what is the best, joke that you feel like you've ever written one that really you thought was good that you go in front of the audience and it just does nothing i have one joke that my wife absolutely hates and every time i do it it gets a lot of laughs and people love it they think it's a great joke and my wife every time says i just don't get it i don't know what they see in that joke well now you got to tell us the joke okay it's kind of hard to do it over a podcast with no audience. Basically, the joke is I was reading an article about these scientists who had did these experiments on these dying hospice patients. One of the conclusions that they came up with was when you die, 
your brain continues to function for 10 minutes after death. And so when I read that, I kind of thought it was fascinating because that means when you die, you may not even know that you're dead, right? Well, that's kind of the same thing as when you're stupid. <laughs> yeah, it really is when you think about it. What is your general kind of humor? Are you more of a dry kind of humor guy? Are you more action-oriented? I don't know what other phrases to necessarily use. Most of my comedy, I kind of describe it as a comedic perspective on death, funerals, and life as a Jewish mortician. I would imagine that that is a very unique perspective in the comedy world. It is, just because... Um, because of who I am and what I do, there's really nobody I've ever met and people that I've talked with and other comedians think it's kind of a unique shtick. I, for somebody who's from the outside of it looking in, I mean, I just feel like, is being a mortician depressing? It can be if you let it be, if you, if you kind of let it. What I kind of do is I kind of try and... I'm obviously really sympathetic and empathetic with my families that I serve, but I, I try to make the experience pos positive and try to um, walk them through the process. And I don't try to get really emotionally attached to the families because you'll burn out and they'll make the job even harder. But I just try to kind of walk them through the process and, and, and make the experience um, you know, easy for them and, and help them get through one of the most difficult days of their life. Have you ever really messed something up? I'm just throwing out an example, like you put the wrong body in the wrong casket or anything like that. Never. Never. You, I would imagine you have to be kind of perfect all the time. There's a lot of safeguards and a lot of um, identification processes and steps and, and protocols and things that we go through to make sure uh, the, the, these mis mistakes never, ever, ever happen. What is your best mortician joke? That's a tough one. I've got so many jokes that I do, but um, I think one of one of my favorite ones is um, I talk about growing up as a kid, and one of the things that I really hated as a kid was going to these big family weddings because I have a big family. But one of the reasons I hated going to the big family weddings because at the reception, my mom, my grandma, Lola, other grandmotherly types would come up, they'd grab my cheek and go, oh, you're next. So one day I kind of came up with a surefire way to get them to stop doing that. Started doing it to them at funerals. Is that when you're a mortician, when you go out in like public and social circles, do people treat you differently at all? It's weird, Nick, because, you know, being established in the community and going to different chamber events and, and when I meet people for the very first time and when they find out that I'm a mortician, they're either really freaked out or they're fascinated. There's really no in between. Why I don't get the freaked out thing. I mean, in the sense, it's like somebody's got to do this job. Why are people freaked out about it? Uh, because death is such a taboo topic. Some people just don't want to talk about it or deal with it. And I get it. I mean, why I look at some of those things and, you know, something that I hear from a lot of people when they're young is like, I'm not going to do this. Just give me a regular pine box. Why is some of that stuff so expensive? Well, it kind of depends on it. On what expenses? I mean, there's there's caskets that run ten thousand on up because they're solid copper bronze caskets. But of course, you can get a real simple, um, like you said, a pine box or a cloth covered casket that's actually really um, useful and economical and affordable. How long do you? I mean, for the comedy stuff, when you go out there, are you still even nervous at this point? Oh, yeah. I, st I still get nervous, but once I get up there and I do my opening joke and I get that first laugh, I can kind of settle in a little bit and I kind of and I kind of have a flow to it. I kind of plan ahead so I kind of know what I'm going to do, what not jokes I'm not going to do. Um, if I get a really poor response on a joke that I know always works, I got to always got a whole bunch of jokes in my back pocket, so to speak, that I can use. So I've kind of got a, a game plan, but I've also got a plan B in case it doesn't go according to plan, because a lot of audiences are different. I would imagine you have to kind of really read that audience as you're going through it. 
I do. I do. I kind of gauge the audience, and then before the shows, I always kind of look around to see uh, the type of audiences that are that are there. There's one club here in Sacramento that tends to get a lot of really a, a younger crowd, and I've done a few shows there, and I just do not do well in that room. Is it? I mean, can you do you kind of know as you're walking in like? This audience is not going to, this is not my audience. I can. I'm at that point now that I know it's going to be a, a tough night or it's going to be a great night. Do you, and if you know it's going to be a tough night, do you ever feel like just, uh, I'm not doing this today? If I'm booked on a show, um, I owe it to the to the promoters, uh, the people that book me, uh, to the club owners, that I'm going to go up there and I'm going to give it 110%. I'm going to do, do my thing. Sometimes... Yeah, it doesn't. It just doesn't work. But you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best. I'm gonna try try my hardest to try to win this crowd over. Sometimes it just doesn't work. That first time that you kind of bombed, what is that like? Oh, it's it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. But actually, when I took the comedy class, the the gentleman that taught the class has been a veteran comic for over 20 years, and he always told us that the very first time you get on stage and you bomb, embrace it and learn from it. So I was actually kind of looking forward to my first bombing experience so I can kind of get it out of the way. Can I make a bad mortician comedian joke? Sure. Could you call it embalming when you don't do well? <laughs> Yes, I, I guess that would be the perfect yes. word for it. <laughs> Listen, I will. I'm going to go ahead and give that to you for free if you want it. I'm going to write that down, Nick. Thank you. That's probably <laughs> that's probably the best mortician comedian joke I've ever come up with. What What is that like then in your kind of daily life when people um, know you as a comedian? Are they always expecting you to be funny? Is that does that get annoying? It kind of. For me, it kind of, when people find out I'm a comedian, uh, it kind of catches them off guard because when I'm not on stage, when I'm kind of in my normal daily routine life and not on stage, I'm actually, believe it or not, kind of a shy, quiet guy. You know, we've talked to a number of people who are actors, and not that this is necessarily the same thing, but people who are in the sex industry and do stuff in front of camera, they all say the same thing, that they're actually pretty shy in their private lives. Exactly. Uh, when I first decided to do this and actually pursue it more, a lot of people went up to my wife and said, really? He's going to go on stage? He comes here for these, these dinner parties, and he barely says a word. Was that discouraging to you, or did you just kind of like, yeah... I figured that was going to happen. I, I I get it. You know, um, I always try to separate my day job from my night job. Um, being a mortician running my own funeral home, I don't tell people that I'm a comedian, especially the families that I serve. Some of them have found out, and they're really supportive of it. But, you know, my night job, it's, a, it's kind of a character that I do on stage. A lot of the things I talk about, um, it's different from who I really am personally. Have you ever, during one of those instances where you're dealing with a family and you read it out, have you ever tried to like crack a joke with them and try to maybe ease the moment or anything, or do you just stay away from that entirely? It's, you know, meeting with a family, making funeral arrangements, it's almost kind of like doing stand-up comedy and the fact that you have to read your audience. And so when I'm meeting with the family, I'm very professional and I offer my condolences and I, and I ask questions and I answer questions and I kind of feel them out a little bit. Sometimes they initiate it by starting with a joke. And saying something funny about what their loved one did or, or what their views on, on death is. And sometimes the manner of death is really tragic and they're just kind of like really sad and, and just really lost. And so I kind of am empathetic and sympathetic and I help them guide them. Sometimes their um, loved one has been ill for a long time. So it's expecting. And they're at, they're not in pain anymore, so they're kind of relieved a little bit. So I kind of read them, read, read the families a little bit too. And sometimes I, you know, kind of 
make them chuckle a little bit without going into too much detail or stories and stuff. But I kind of have a good sense of, of, of when to break the ice and when not to. In all your years as a mortician, what is one of the things that kind of stands out to you, a story that stands out to you? I would have to say uh, several years ago, I worked for a corporately owned funeral home in a really bad part of Sacramento. I mean, it was so bad that in the cemetery behind the funeral home, drug dealers and prostitutes were doing their business. We'd walk out to do uh, through the cemetery and find needles in um, in the cemetery. But we also did a, a ton of gang funerals. And once we... Um, we did a gang funeral, and whenever we do gang funerals, we always get the calls from the police department saying that they're going to have undercover people at the service. They're going to be uh, at the RV place across the street taking photographs. And so we kind of always know that they're there. And I think that's probably the, the oddest thing is the gang funerals that we did. You wouldn't know that they were cops because they looked just like the gang members. I would imagine the mortician industry, the funeral industry, is kind of recession-proof. Um, we're at the point now where the baby boomers are starting to die off a little bit. So um, there is a kind of a, a higher death rate now than there was, so say, like 20 years ago. But um, it's, you know, and honestly, Nick, it's kind of competitive. There's a lot of uh, um, low-cost cremation providers popping out. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's actually a lot of competition, believe it or not. And it's kind of, and between some cities, it's pretty cutthroat. What, what is something about the industry that would surprise me? The, probably the cremation rate, how it's changed over the years. Uh, back in like, uh, in here in California, in 1960, the cremation rate was 2%. Now it's all, almost 75%. Why is that? Uh, one of the reasons for the rise in the cremation rate was, I think it was, man, I think it was like 1999 when the Vatican uh, changed its views on cremation and let the Catholics go ahead and be cremated. Um, another reason was 2008 when the economy tanked. Um, when somebody died, they, you know, they only want the best for their for their loved one, but when the economy tanked and the real estate market went upside down, people lost their jobs. When mom or dad died, they were left left with the financial burden on their kids, and their kids were the one ones that were affected by the economy. And even though they wanted the best for mom, they didn't have any money, and cremation was the most uh, affordable option at that time. Still, kind of is. I remember I was I'm a news reporter by day and I remember doing stories about people selling funeral pots to make money. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you you can go on Craigslist right now and I bet you you can find funeral pots for sale. I always hear a lot of comedians talk about how they feel like the political correct culture is kind of ruining some aspects of that. Do you ever kind of not tell a joke because you're worried that somebody might get offended or do you think that that's what comedians are so supposed to do? I think a lot of comedians, not me because I kind of have a specific theme that I adhere to, but I know a lot of comedians that try to uh, kind of push the envelope and tell stories and try to see just how far to the edge they could push it um, without going over. Um, a lot of them, you know, think that they're protected by free speech, and I guess in a, in a way that they are. But, you know, like you said, it's a, it's a PC culture, and, and yeah, you can talk about politics or religion or a whole bunch of different subjects, and are you, gonna, are you going to offend somebody? Probably. Do you feel like that's a bad thing, that you could offend somebody, or do you think that people need to lighten up, I guess? A little bit of both. I do think people need to kind of sit back and lighten up a little bit and realize, hey, it's a comedian on stage and he's telling a joke. Have you ever had somebody kind of heckle you or yell at you from the crowd? I very rarely get heckled. Um, it, it has it has happened a couple of times. Um, kind of funny that you mention it because I was writing a joke and it kind of mentioned about me being Jewish and, and Hanukkah and had some kind of references. 
to uh, Jesus coming out of the tomb, and boy, it it did not go well. It really did not go well, and I got some groans and some comments afterwards from people saying, "Wow, that was really uh, put, that was really pushing it." What was the what was the joke? It was kind of like uh, I was talking about one of the reasons I converted to Judaism because I didn't believe. Uh, a lot of the fairy tales in the New Testament. See, I wasn't born Jewish. I converted. Um, I didn't believe a lot of the stories in the New Testament, like Jesus turning water into wine, um, Jesus walking out of his tomb after being dead for three days. And I thought at one point, what did he do? Did he walk out of his tomb, walk up to the Four Seasons, put three nails on the cock counter and say, hey, can you put me up for the night? Hey, I like that joke. Nailed it. Boy, <laughs> I thought it was funny when I wrote it, and I ran it by a couple of people. I tried it at an open mic, and they, oh, I thought that they, they turned on me really fast. They were going to rush the stage on you? Who's your favorite comedian? You have to pick one. Only one? Only one. Easy. Easy. Jerry Seinfeld. Okay. Who is, in your opinion, the least funny comedian other people think is funny like the person the person that you just don't get like i just don't get why this person is such a whatever i would have to say oh man who who do i just don't get that people think it's the cat's meow that's i would have to say probably i would say bill burr yeah, he's kind of big right now, though, isn't he? He is really big, and he's got some great material and stuff, but sometimes I'll watch his stand-up, and it's like, uh, don't really like this. And, and, and comedy is really subjective. I mean, there's there's comedians that people just love, and there's some people that comedians just, you know, they just don't like and don't get. It's It's just really hard. Is there any kind of thing, and this is really the last question that I would have, that if people think you're going to be funny, you're going to be funny. Like, I feel like some big-name comedians, you just expect them to be funny, so then everything they say is funny. I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think a lot of people, if you're a comedian, they find out that you're a comedian, they kind of expect you to be on all the time. Yeah, I would think that kind of gets exhausting after a while. It does. When we're not performing and we're just kind of being ourselves... We just kind of like to chill a little bit. Last question that I have is, does your immediate family think you're funny? Uh, <laughs> uh, my son, no. <laughs> but my other family members, uh, my wife goes to all my performances and, and open mics with me. My One of my sisters goes to a lot of my shows, and she loves my material and brings her friends with me, too. Um my brother and my other sister, they've gone to a few shows and they'll probably agree that I'm, I'm the funniest one in the family. I want to thank Morty the Mortician so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, find out where he's going to be doing different shows. We have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're Profoundly Pointless on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now let's go ahead and give John Shull a call. Remember... That if you were with us for our first episodes, he would always pretend like he was Domino's or some other kind of fast food place. That's really fallen off, but I feel like he's about to start trying to bring it back. There he is. How come you don't do the, the pretending to be a restaurant anymore? Uh, well, Captain D's, my official, unofficial sponsor, doesn't like when I promote other restaurants. But why couldn't you then just be pretend to be Captain D's? That, that's part of the uh, the contract. I'm not, I'm not allowed to uh, mock them or make fun of them or act like I have really any affiliation with them at all. So really your sponsorship is kind of they sponsor you not to talk about them? That's exact. That's exactly what my uh, one of my many agents told me was going to happen. So apparently it's it happens, you know, it's all like the uh, the rookies in the business, so. Yeah, apparently it's uh, it's it's the new thing uh, in Hollywood or, or whatever show business you want to call it to where companies actually pay you not to talk about them. 
Seems like not a great business plan, but look, who am I to ca- to question Captain D's? I don't know if you know this, but you're talking to a yo-yo expert here. I've had a lot of a lot of uh, traction on that video. I think I'm up to like 3,000 total views. You know, that's really interesting that you would talk about the um, the yo-yo thing because I actually I showed our uh, professional, the world champion yo-yo competitor, your yo-yo video. This is what he had to say about it. Yes. So he's he's getting a little cocky there. That's what I thought too. Looks like he's he's going for it. Oh, the Ferris! Oh, he's just swinging it around. Yeah, you know. (laughs) I I really think he could add some music to his performance here and just kind of jam out because it looks like the yo-yo skills are a bit lacking. It looks like he kind of maybe just picked it up day of. So maybe he could kind of make up for that with like some style points, but uh, you know he's he's on his way. If he if he commits to it, I think he could do some good things. <laughs> is is that really even a trick? Because it looks to me like he just swung it around. No, he's he's definitely just swinging it around. But I mean, I think you know he was he was doing around the world. He just needs to get a spinning. So basically, the yo-yo, the professional yo-yo competitor, says that you have no idea what you're doing and that you just swung the yo-yo around. So the yo-yo video that you made everybody wait more than a month for, basically, it came out to be nothing. How do you respond to that? Listen, uh, Montgomery Gentry or whatever his name is, is, is he? I feel like that's a challenge. First of all, Montgomery Gentry is an old country band. Second of all, there's no reason that he would challenge you. He clearly dominates you. Let's do it. Let's, you know, I I admit my skills may have been a little rusty, but if he (laughs) wants the Ferris wheel, I'll I'll show him the Ferris wheel again. (laughs) It's not even a trick. It's just you swinging it around. I I am making a public, a public challenge to, uh, to, uh, to Montgomery Gentry over there. To a yo-yo off. He's already won. It's not even like a competition. Why would he accept that? Because, you know, even Rudy had his day. I feel like that story's not really true. <laughs> actually, getting off on that, I, I've heard the same thing. I've actually met Rudy, and he was a rude son of a bitch. Well, how so? I was in college, and he was at a, uh, he was doing a book signing. And uh, I, I nobody was waiting for him, so I just walked up and I'm like, "Man, you're Rudy Rudiger." And he basically was like, "Hey, you want an autograph? Twenty bucks." Whoa! And I, was like, I was like, "No," <laughs> I told him I wasn't interested in getting an autograph. I just wanted to, you know, say hello and tell him that you know I was an admirer of a story and blah blah blah, and basically wanted nothing to do with talking about anything. He just wanted to make a buck. So I understand that. By the same point, it's like, you know, who are you? If you just had one thing that you were known for, would you would you embrace that one thing or would you be would you be kind of sick of it? You know, everyone would say they'll embrace it, but look at everybody that is literally only famous for one thing, whether it's good or bad. And like it eats their entire life. Yeah, I think it would get I think it would get pretty annoying. But then at the same time, like you'll see people at different let's say comic book conventions or something like that, they seem to hate it, but they're also trying to make money off of it. Like they won't let yes. it go either. Can I, listen, we just jump into the fast five real fast. No, I have some I important, I have some important questions to get to, to ask you first. Man, I'm so excited. Okay. All right. Number one, how do you want to die? <laughs> that, that, uh, that is quite the question. Well, I've always said that I would rather, and I think everyone would agree that you would rather go out painless, right? I don't know. I think I'd kind of want to go out. I'd secretly like to be eaten by a bear or some kind of some kind of a crazy story like that. Like that sounds horrific. That does not sound like a way I'd want to go out. See, but for me, this is the way that I look at it. Like you basically only have four or five real accomplishments in life. You're born, you get married, you have a kid you buy a house, and you die. Like, death is the last thing that you're ever going to do. Why not go out in kind of like a blaze of glory and really experience death? That way, whatever happens next, like if you're just sitting around a table talking to all your other dead friends, 
you've got a good story like, oh, I didn't die on the toilet or I didn't have a heart attack and collapsed in an airport bathroom. Like, I want to know about the guy who got eaten by a bear. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if you're going that, I mean, of course. You're all sitting around the poker table wherever you are after you're dead and you're swapping stories. I mean, that is a pretty badass story. I, I guess I, I mean, if I'm going to have a choice, it's like, I just jump from a freeway overpass and get crushed by a semi truck or something. See, that's I'm interested in that guy. Like, whoa, like, man, what was that like? Well, if you do that, and listen, we're not encouraging anybody to do this, but if you do that while falling, will you say so far so good? The question is pretty morbid, but I also think it's a question that several people, you know, people have to face, uh, and it's a frequent question. I mean, I don't think it's something that's not we're talking about how often do you think about death mm. your own your specifically your own death well i mean listen my my I, I i can literally fill each artery as it clogs uh so i'm probably not too far away um and a, as one of our fellow listeners pointed out uh and, and this is credit to you nick you almost made one of our listeners get into a car accident uh, a week and a half ago because of a joke that you said on uh, on one of the podcasts um, asking me how many pounds uh, would I say I was away from being able to wear shorts permanently. I, I think like you and I were both 30s, you know, I, I don't think we think about it, you know, I think you go through cycles of your life to where it's more prevalent or uh, prevalent and I don't, you know, I, I, I don't ever think about it right now. See, I think about my own death every day. And, I, I don't. I, I don't even remember the last time I, I thought about it. I was worried about it. I mean, I, it doesn't really cross my mind. I guess, it, like, I always think about it. At least once a day, the thought of my own death crosses my mind. Now I feel like now I feel like I'm probably alone on that one. Is there a reason why it crosses your mind? I would say just because I think no matter how much I would like to believe that there is something else, I think you get one shot at this, and when you're dead, you're dead. Well, unless you're NASA and you pick up that radio signal, did you see that story? What are you What are you talking about? What does that yeah, have to do that, with dying? That came out this this past week. Uh, are you Are you trying to the, segue the, into your Fast Five? No, no, you're talking about you know the the other side, and then NASA picked up like from like sixty billion light years away, like six uh, radio signals that were all the same. That were like sent back to back to back to back. And that's the first time in recorded history that they've ever picked up like that strong of a radio signal or radio frequency where some, you know, something's being sent back to back to back to back. See, my problem with any of those kind of things is I feel like either they've just made a huge discovery or somebody in the next room left the microwave on too long and screwed with all the equipment. <laughs> Like I would, I don't put it past anything, any agency, any job. Like we all make mistakes. Just because you're NASA doesn't mean that someone, yeah, wasn't microwaving a burrito down the hall and it fucked with your whole system. <laughs> because that's that's really the old like keep it simple, stupid. That's that's probably the more realistic explanation. Is either we've detected life from another universe, or Greg from accounting accidentally flipped the microwave on at the wrong time. Here, here's the million dollar question is what kind of bear would it be? Oh, grizzly bear. I'm going to go top three. I would go, if I'm going to get mauled by a bear, I'm going to go grizzly bear number one, polar bear number two, and then I'm going to go like a young black bear because I think that I could maybe fight it off for a decent amount of time long enough to say that I put up a good fight. See, I, I would rather like to make it just a true news story, like give me like a koala bear. <laughs> Like, have me, you know, have me, like, <laughs> like if, we're, if we're going for absurd, like, have me walk through the streets of Detroit and, like, get attacked by a panda and just get mauled in front of a group of onlookers. Did you know that the Siafu ant is known for its large marching columns, which can number as many as 50 million ants in that marching column? They're so big, they can actually be a menace to people. 50 million ants all at once? That sounds... Like something nightmares are made of. This is the most impressive animal, random animal facts animal we've ever had. 
Like, I was looking at this like, holy shit. Most ants in the colony are sterile, but when they encounter a fertile male, they tear off its wings, bring him back to the queen, which then uses him to lay as many as a million eggs in a month. Wow. That that guy's having a good that guy's having a good month if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think after the first month though, he's fucking exhausted. She probably eats him. Yeah, I think she does actually. I'm pretty sure she kills him. John's fast five. Pew 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 pew. pew. John's fast five. Pew 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 pew. John's fast five. My turn. This isn't going to work while he's out awake. You know that, right? Are you ready for your Fast Five that you're apparently really pumped about? This is probably the, the easily the most talkable uh, and conversational Fast Five I've ever had. Ooh, he's building it up. Let's hear it. What, what, what are your thoughts on macaroni and cheese? It's fucking delicious, and I would definitely buy a 97-pound... At least 97 pounds of it. Well, Costco is is selling a 27-pound tub of it, uh, which sounds disgusting. And what's even more disgusting is all the shit they probably put in it, because apparently it has a shelf life of 20 years. That's Like, listen, I know that some people get upset about the whole organic and the hormones and stuff like that. If you have something that's going to last food-wise for 20 years— Shit, man. I mean, that's just, you're just, you might as well just go under the kitchen, mix a bunch of chemicals together, and eat that. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of fucked. But hey, you know what? You can get you can get it for the uh, the lofty price of $89.99, so. I don't know if that's a good deal or not. How much is that a pound? That's $3 a pound for mac and cheese? I don't think that's a great deal. Uh, listen, I, I have seven boxes of Kraft right now that probably equal a pound. And it's just as good, I guarantee it. Will you eat mac and cheese just by itself? Like, what am I having for dinner? I'm having straight mac and cheese, or do you have to have a side? I mean, I don't remember the last time I just had mac and cheese by itself. So I usually make it with, you know, chicken or or, or brisket or something like that. First of all, you make mac and cheese with hot dogs. That's the only acceptable way to eat mac and cheese. When you're seven. And you don't even say mac and cheese, right? You say it like all... all all blocky mac and cheese how do you say it it's mac and cheese it's not like mac and cheese it's mac and cheese no it's mac and cheese i don't hear the difference well maybe our listeners can can decipher it for us but it's not mac and cheese it's mac and cheese oh you're combining the mac the the c at the end and the a and the and like mac and cheese cheese. yeah not mac and cheese that's a good point. Okay, we'll we'll find out what the real answer is. I, I actually kind of I'm siding with you. I feel like it's mac and cheese. So then that leads me to another controversial uh, topic. Have you seen the movie Bird Box? No. Once 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 something gets really really popular, I refuse to participate in it. Or is it just because you think it's scary? Scary. I, I haven't seen it either, but I, I apparently, the premise of it is Sandra Bullock's in it and... Sandra Bullock, not Bullock. Bullock. That's why I said Bullock. No, you said Bullock. It's Bullock. Are, I mean, listen, you're only going at me because I called you out on your Mac and Cheese comment. Well, look, if we're going to be chromatic... Cr- never mind, just keep going. <laughs> Got him. The premise of the movie is they're, I, I guess they're kidnapped or something or they're blindfolded and they have to uh, (laughs) do stuff blindfolded anyways these idiot kids that you know we're so happy to call are now blindfolding themselves and doing regular things and they're calling them calling it the blindfold or uh, the bird box challenge see i think i think that this is the younger generation secretly fucking with us like, I think that they are, like, the Tide Pod Challenge and stuff. I think that they're trolling us with this kind of stuff. And, like, watch, I'm going to do this stupid thing and convince these older people that I'm actually serious about it. I think they're trolling us. The, the, the Tide Pod Challenge, which is fucking absurd, isn't even the dumbest thing I, I've seen. It, it's the, I think the dumbest challenge I've seen recently are the, the idiots that douse themselves in, like, lighter fluid and light themselves on fire. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty stupid. I haven't I mean, seen that one. I don't know what websites you're going on. <laughs> oh, man. Well, anyways, so my point in that being uh, there was a kid in Utah that blindfolded himself and attempted to drive a certain distance. Well, you imagine how that, how that turned out. He ended up crashing into another car. Shocker. I can't believe it. <laughs> Just, people are dumb. I don't get it. Like, you know, now they're saying that, you know, Bird Box, the movie is to blame because it's putting all these thoughts into people's or kids' minds. You know, it's, it's no accountability anymore. Um, which state has the most shoreline in the contiguous United States? I'm not going to get into the contiguous. I feel like that's somehow incorrect. But I, I think so, too. <laughs> I, I wrote the word down. And I know what it is, but I think I spelled it wrong. I, th- I would think it's continuous, not contiguous. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure. I think it's contiguous or contiguous. I don't know. I can't read what I wrote, so I'm, I'm I fucked it up. I think this but makes me question. This makes me question your whole mac and cheese thing. Listen, answer the question. I feel like it's. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go um, out of the box and say Michigan. Oh, you're so good. Of course you would say Michigan, which yeah. is correct, by the way. Well, I mean, the Great Lakes, and you guys have got all those weird little fucking features up there. We're actually, we're second to Alaska. Alaska has the most shoreline. But that seemed too obvious to me. That's why I didn't go with Alaska. Yeah. I don't well, think... plus they're part of Russia anyway, so they don't really count as a state. Shout out to Vermont, by the way. They've actually a couple of people who listen to us in Vermont. The, the, the rest of the Fast Five is all football related, because I had to bring this up about the video that I tweeted out about the fans doing the field goal challenge and the one guy just completely misses it and just kicks the ball right into the dick of like one of the workers might be one of the funniest videos I've ever seen. You really, you really can't go wrong with a nut shot video. You just can't. (laughs) I mean, so after I sent that to you and you told me that, uh, I literally YouTube searched good nut shots and watched videos uh, pertaining to that for probably a good 20 minutes. How do you feel about when people recommend or tell you to watch a video and they want to like show it to you on your phone or call you over to their computer? How do you feel about that? I mean, I'm indifferent. I mean, you know, if, if you want to take the time to, to, to find it or show me it, I mean, I'll, I'll watch it. I mean, I, I you know, I think it all goes into who it is that's showing it. Like, I immediately know by who's asking me, like, what it's going to be and if I'm actually going to enjoy it. See, I I don't like it. When somebody's ever like, let me show you this video, I just have an immediate internal groan because I know they're not going to just show me one. Then they're going to have to show me all 40 of them that they want to watch. And I just, I I can't stand it. I hate it when somebody says it to me. And then I want to get your take on this. Uh, during the Patriots game, uh, Patriots playoff game against the Chargers uh, this past Sunday, uh, the NFL, they have a, a woman official. Uh, her name's Sarah Thomas. And she officiated the first NFL playoff game uh, for a woman. I, I Look, I got no issue with it. I mean, if you can do the job, then who gives a shit? I don't care if, if she's a woman, uh, you know, a, a Martian. Uh, a polar bear, like I, if you can do a, a good job, I like I like I, I used to imagine like her, like imagine all the trials she's gone through just to get there. Like she's probably a hard ass. And and I can see some people who would make the argument, well, you didn't play the game, but you didn't, you don't need to play the game to officiate it. You just need to know the rules. Well, I mean, listen, I played the game, and now I can't walk. I'm fifty pounds overweight, and my yo-yo video only has three thousand views. Where's the picture of your feet? You were supposed to send a picture of your feet. I, I, I got nothing on that. I, I'm not entirely sure I want, like, you know, everything about this is public. I'm not entirely sure I want a picture of my feet, just float, like, foot just floating around. How would you like, feel if somebody was, like, getting it to a picture of your feet? That I, I, I mean, I guess more power to you, I, I guess. I mean, I'm never going to know. I think it would be more weird, like, if someone sent me, a, like, a picture or video that's like, hey, nice feet. <laughs> and I don't know why it would be a man automatically, but 
That's how I envision it. <laughs> Why do I feel like you have been caught by your wife many times and knocked over your computer in each case? Let's just move on. Our top five we're, we're on to the top five. And so these are the top five things that you are forced to lie to your significant other about. Can, I mean, can, can we just get number one out of the way? Because I feel like number one is glaring. No, see, mine might. Mine is a little bit different. Let's go five to one. All right, so I'll start. Uh, my uh, number five is finances. Yeah, that's a pretty solid one. Wait, do you it, lie? Do you lie though and say that you have more or less than you actually have, or well, both? I, I think this happens more early on in a relationship when you're not necessarily sharing bank accounts and things like that. But I feel that more or less. You always lie pretending to have more. See, I think that once you get married, though, that you kind of pretend like you have less so that as much doesn't get spent. So, so, so she just doesn't come up to you and just think that she can spend $3,000 on closets or something? Yeah, I tend to kind of, I tend to kind of under, like, I try to pitch it low. Like, ooh, <laughs> credit, like, ooh credit card bill a little high this month. Got to get that down. <laughs> well, you're you're a brave man for even attempting, uh, you know, the credit talk. But what uh, what do you got for number five? Washing the dishes. My wife forces me to lie to her about whether or not I've pre rinsed it before I put it in the in the dishwasher. <laughs> that uh, that's a good one, actually. That 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 can be a, like a a good argument starter. Anything that involves dishes. Yeah, I just don't understand the point. Why am I fucking washing it before I'm washing it? <laughs> I've I've never understood that either. And if you watch or or, or read any of the advertisements, as always, you know the, this has ten thousand pressure and jet streams that'll make El Nino look like a pussy, and then it doesn't do anything. Nope, it's all the same. I have this just because. Uh, you know, I, I think this is like guy code. So this is strictly from, well, no, this could be from a girl's point of view. Either way, uh, not saying anything about a bachelor or bachelorette party. Yeah, that's a pretty good one too. Um, like, like you just got to lie straight up. Like I, I don't care what happens and anyone that listens to this will agree. Like what happens at those kind of events stays at those kind of events. Yeah. And I don't want to know what is going on at a bachelorette party. I don't. I. It's probably not. It's not in the same vein as the bachelor party. But I can also, for all three of our female listeners, tell you that whatever you think is probably. What are you doing? You're, what? What am I doing? You're breathing into the phone again. Damn it! I was reading. What are you reading? You fucking reading War and Peace, flipping through pages left and right. What are you doing? No, I'm, I was reading my list to make sure that I had something right. What? Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I know you just did that on purpose, too. <laughs> yeah, I did the last one on purpose. I'm a mouth breather. Leave me alone. <laughs> whatever anybody, whatever, for our three female listeners, whatever you think is happening at a bachelor party? Trust me, it's not. Nobody is having these wild things. Everybody passes out early, and no one gets laid. <laughs> I mean, yes, Nick, you you are correct. My number four is not very good. Now that I look at it, it's what my son ate for lunch or dinner because I basically just give him ice cream and Cheeto puffs, and then she's got to ask me what I gave him, and I've got to say, oh, these organic waffles. Oh man. Well, I I mean I'm not there yet, but like I I already get the questions asked to like so how many ounces did she get today? How many how many times did you feed her? And it's always a lie. Always. <laughs> yeah, I know. Why do they make <laughs> us do it? Like you're making me lie to you. You know I'm just going to lie to you. <laughs> like yeah, like you don't trust me to do daily like activities. And you're entrusting me to make sure that our child gets proper nutrition? Like, that's a joke. That's on you. At that point, it's not on me. It's on you for thinking, like, I'm going to take care of her the proper way. <laughs> Preach. What's your number four? <laughs> Preach, brother. I'm on number three now. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. What's your number three? 
Uh, telling her she looks pretty when she doesn't. Oh, God. <laughs> That's... I, 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 I say this more or less, and listen, this goes out to all the guys in the world. When you have a pregnant wife, and she's busting at the seams, and her <laughs> hormones are going crazy, and she looks at you with that crazed look in her eyes, she's like, do I look pretty? <laughs> Every... Every fucking guy in the world lies. I don't care what you say. Like, uh, yes, it's beautiful because she's carrying your child and blah blah blah. But it's like deep down, you want to you want to say like, well, you probably looked a little better. <laughs> Look, but here's the thing: she could say the same thing about us. Oh God, yeah. I mean, well, my wife does actually. My wife was just talking about like. She's like, we were reminiscing on our relationship, and she's like, you know, uh, you know, talking about times from five, six years ago, and and this and that, and how my knees didn't crack, and how you know I could fit into Schmedium t-shirts, and you know, that was a fun conversation. My wife, though, recently has been like, oh, I thought you were working out recently. Doesn't look like it. My number three is what time I'm going to be home. See, I. I, I actually don't lie about that because I, I, I appreciate punctuality. But what if I, what if I was having dinner ready at seven? That's or an early time home? to eat. I mean, I don't think anybody eats that early. At seven p.m. Yeah, who eats at seven p.m. under the age of seventy-five? I, I'm so confused. <laughs> dinner, dinner is supposed to be between five and six. This is this to me is this to me pisses me off. You know what time breakfast is? Breakfast, no matter, is any time. It's the first meal you eat. So if you eat at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, that's fucking breakfast. Whatever time you eat dinner, is the last meal of the day is dinner, no matter what time you eat it. Well, unless you're me, and then you have a couple of late-night snacks, you know. Like, I scour the, I scour the, uh, we're, we're trying this new, this new uh, diet. Yeah. Let me and go. I, I, I can tell I, you now how that ends. Oh, uh, well, I can tell you how it's going to turn out. <laughs> I can't see it now. I'm definitely not gonna be able to see it in six weeks. But uh, I'm like a ravager, man. I'm like I'm like trying. I'm I'm scouring the the fridge for anything, and I, I ended up settling on olives. Fucking olives! <laughs> I'm like a maniac with like a replay of Sports Center at like three a.m. and I'm eating fucking olives. Were well, you going green olives? You going black olives? It was uh, it was the queen the the queen green they call them. Oh my god, dude, that's really desperate. You went black olives. I wouldn't have said it was that desperate. See, I I don't I don't like really black olives, <laughs> black olives, which I guess doesn't really make any sense because I like green olives, and it's they're technically kind of the same thing. See, I go with, I, I'm the exact opposite. I don't like green olives. I like black olives. You know what's funny? This actually plays into my number two perfectly. Okay. Which is which is uh, when you're making them dinner and they're on a diet, and you tell them that you're making them like the healthy version when you really don't. Oh, you're lying about the food quality. What's your uh, What's your number two? It's already been discussed. Essentially, how she looks is my number two. My wife right, always well, does a hair thing. She's always switching the hair around, and there's been some times where she's come back and I've been like, "Oh, that's." I'm not uh, laughing. I swear. That's um, that's different. It's a different look you're going for. One thing I, I that I, I, I grotesque are are painted fingernails. Detest, not grotesque. Detest. When me and my my wife got together, like I had to you know take the fifth every time she did it, and eventually I finally just told her like, you know, why are you painting your fingernails? You look like a fucking clown. Wait a minute, you're mad just over, wait, are they extravagantly painted, or are they just, like, one color? No, it's not that I got mad, like, I, I just, I don't like it, I, I don't know why, but, like, it just, it just bothers me, because, like, they get chipped, or, like, you know, like, they're not put on properly, I don't know, like, don't paint yourself at all, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just, I can't stand painted fingernails, I don't understand why. Really? That's interesting. Maybe it's because you, you have foot jealousy. What I'm telling you is that you're secretly proud of the feet that you have claimed are great feet, but you refer, refuse to show a picture. And if anybody else threatens you, whether their feet or their hand nails, fingernails, you're threatened by it. Like, I dread the fact that my daughter is going to be like, oh, daddy, let me paint your toenails and fingernails. I'm, 
I'm going to have to be like, how about you go do it to somebody else? Anyways, uh, my number one, which I believe should be the universal number one, is uh, lying about your past partners. See, I've never done that. We have never, both of us completely avoid the conversation. We uh, both were born into this world never having met anyone else before this. I mean, listen, that's fine if that's the way you want to do it. I'm, I'm not going to judge or say anything. I mean, that's that's perfectly fine. I just, I, I feel to be able to understand somebody, you know, you should know, you know, their past and where they come from and their experiences. Yeah, but I don't think you need to know a lot of details. I don't think you need to, like, look, the idea that you've had boyfriends or girlfriends in the past is, is enough for me. I don't need to know who they were, their names, their pictures, anything. Then the first initial thought is you start asking yourself questions, right? Like, oh, is that person going to pop back up? And, oh, well, that guy had a six-pack. I don't have a six-pack. What the fuck did he do wrong? Or that guy's an oil tycoon. You know, it's like, <laughs> I just, I, not that that's anything from experience, by the way. <laughs> I was just throwing random things out there. No. I was really interested in some follow-up questions. If your wife's previous boyfriend was an oil tycoon. You know, when you first get together, I feel like that's always one of the things, whether people want to admit it or not, that you, that you think about is, you know, like, how do I bring up this question or, you know, how do I start, you know, talking about this or asking this? Yeah, I would actually, I think that my number one probably really is the same as your number one. Mine is who I was talking to. Like, I can't, if even if, and, and look, even if it's somebody from work or a friend that I've known for years, I cannot infer in any way that it is a woman like i have to say oh, oh i was talking to this person she sees oh, right that through is... it <laughs> well, that's because she's a smart woman uh i mean you know the the dumbest thing i think and i don't know when it was popular but it was to do you know you talk to each other and you go well just tell me your number most people don't remember their number so you lie anyways yeah i would say that people are probably gonna lie about that See, now here's the final thing. Do you actually lie? Because for me, I will get really close to lying to her but not actually do it. I mean, you know, you withhold the truth, right? Like you don't you don't tell her the whole story and I say two, right? Like lying because anyone who knows me knows that I'm a professional virgin anyways, but <laughs> Do you realize how stupid us two married men are for bringing up this conversation which our wives will listen to? We really I mean, fucked this up. I mean, you're the one who wanted to do this top five. I didn't realize until we started talking about it how dumb of an idea it was for us to do this. <laughs> well, I guess we're never going to be able to <laughs> to lie to our spouses uh, ever again. Not that I really ever have. Not that I ever have either. That's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We're on social media, Profoundly Pointless, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have ProfoundlyPointless.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. And we've also started putting up some of, uh, some of the interview sections up on YouTube. So if you want to see what some of these people look like, Head over to our YouTube channel. Coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're gonna be we're gonna be trying out some new stuff, I think. Because we're getting more and more listener comments and we want to start featuring you guys on the show. And we've got some really interesting guests lined up as well. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.